Anyone care to open us in prayer before we get into I will, it? Ray. Go ahead. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love and for your gracious, overtending care of all of us. We praise you and we give you thanks for who you are before we come to you with any of our petitions. But we do ask, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear your word through your servant, Ray, that you would give him that which will quicken in our spirits the truth of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we want to get into the next passage in the book of Romans that follows that very, very central and important passage in Romans 12. In fact, if you look at the very first word, uh, verse 3, kind of transitions, the word for tells us that it is following something that uh, was stated previously. So verses 1 and 2 flow very smoothly into verse 3, and I take it, and we'll see when we get into it. I'm going to give you a little review of verses 1 and 2 and uh, pick up where we left off. There were a couple of things I wanted to say at the end of the second verse there. But those two verses will flow into what we're going to discuss today, dealing with the church. And I see the application of chapters 12 through basically the middle of 15, and then there's a conclusion. I see that as the applicational portion of the book of Romans. And I think by application, what we mean is he's been discussing throughout chapters 1 through 11, the righteousness of God and how God has provided it in relationship to both Jew and Gentile. And now, by applying this concept of righteousness, what does it look like in everyday situations? And obviously, what does it look like in relationship to God? And what does it look like in relationship to the church? So chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, tells us about, or at least gets us started in uh, that major area, the relationship to the church. Now, we're not going to get through verse 8 today, but we'll hopefully get through verse 5. That's the plan. So we're dealing with believers, the book entirely, even chapters 1, 2, and 3 that seem to deal with the unbeliever, only by way of topic, but in terms of audience, it's for the benefit of those that already have made the commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ for our understanding to better understand what unbelief and the unbeliever is all about. So we've already seen chapters 1 through 8 where God has provided this righteousness that is available to unrighteous creatures and how it relates to the nation of Israel because there's a special situation in the church age. Israel is set aside, but not permanently, so God is vindicated All of his promises will, in fact, be fulfilled. The nation of Israel is not permanently set aside or abandoned, but simply on a temporary basis. So God's righteousness is vindicated in 9 through 11. And now all of that, as I've already said, will be applied. How does God's righteousness look in uh, these different situations that those that are justified by faith have to face 
in uh, the world in which we live in. And obviously it begins with our relationship to God. And I actually see this as crucial. If we don't have verses one and two right, if we're, we're not rightly related to God, then everything else doesn't matter. We're not going to be able to do anything in relationship, anything of lasting value in relationship to the church, which we will begin to look at. That runs through the rest of chapter 12. And uh, we will not have the power to be able to do anything in relationship to society, which is chapter 13. And we're going to be out of perspective when it comes to Christian liberty and all of the relationships involved there. So it's a quick overview of basically the whole book. And then after that, we have the conclusion. And uh, in outline form, basically the same chart, except with outline Roman numerals, first major division after the introduction, provision of God's righteousness running through the end of chapter 8, Vindication of God's Righteousness 9 through 12, Application of God's Righteousness 12, 1 through 15, 13. We spent our two last weeks in verses 1 and 2 because they're crucial and important and foundational to everything else. So how does righteousness look like? How do we apply it in relationship to God himself? And we said the focus was uh, basically unreserved, total commitment. Paul uses the word, present your bodies. Now, I stress that when he uses this idea of a body, he's alluding to what what the Old Testament believers, the Israelites, did in presenting a sacrifice. We have sacrificial language here. The presentation of our bodies means more than just the physical body because it's not dead. It's actually a living and a set-apart sacrifice. That would be a better way to get the idea of holiness there. And that makes it acceptable to the Lord. And that becomes essentially our service of worship, our rational or spiritual service of worship. So we spent some time looking at that. And when it comes to living in the church, I think everything relating to living in relationship to other believers within the body of Christ, and I think broadly, not only, but specifically the local church, but I think it's applicable to the broader body of Christ as we're kind of represented in our little group here with people not only in different places in the U.S., but we include Stuart as well in Australia. And in fact, the Monies have uh, a young person from uh, Pakistan this morning. So maybe they'll tell us a little bit more about that later. So living in the church, I see like I did in verses one and two. In fact, I'll review them in order to understand what it looks like. I think it begins with this concept of submitting to God moment by moment. We have to moment by moment live for him as verses one and two indicate. So a submitting to God by a moment by moment experience and relationship makes possible and flows into and gives us the enablement to be able to uh, live in relationship to one another. 
And uh, the latter part of 1 and 2, verse 2, there's two aspects to presenting ourselves, a negative first and then a positive, not to be conformed to the world or the world system or the worldview you might even put in there. It's the word aeon, which the Greek word, it's not cosmos, but they're used somewhat interchangeably to refer to the world system or a worldview. And uh, I think if we conform to the worldview, we step out of God's will and don't have the power available. And that's the starting point, because once we determine to separate, that's what the holiness idea has there, and not do the things that the world does, now we will have the enablement and the working. And by the way, these verbs are in the passive, so it's God working in us to transform us, to be transformed, and that comes about as a result of renewing our minds. So we need to rethink our relationship to the world, rethink everything that we were raised with, rethink everything that we are influenced by that comes out of the world, and view things from a biblical worldview, the renewing of our mind. And it begins by sorting out those things that we are tempted to be conformed to, to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. Back to what we talked about, the submitting of God, that's the presenting of ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. The uh, And I'm giving you the essence of what we looked at, setting apart from the world, which includes being transformed into the image of Christ And that leads to, if that process is working within us, it's going to result in a product or something that actually can be observed so that you may prove. Now, that's kind of where we left off last time. So let me kind of explain a little bit what's going on with the word prove here. And we'll do that by reviewing some of the key terms conformity or being conformed. We looked at the Greek word there, fitting the mold, you might say, or fitting the pattern of the world. And here's the Greek word, aeon, the word for world. The the word is translated in some context, age, the age or the worldview. Jeff? Yeah. um, I think the other words you were looking for earlier, not only is there aeon, which is age, cosmos's world, There's a third word that's sometimes used, uh, the word that we get the word economy from, oikonomias. Oh, yeah. Dispensation. We get the word dispensation as well. Very good. Yeah. And, of course, dispensatio is from the Latin, and it's where we get dispensationalism. Yeah. Oikonomia is uh, kind of an administration or a... uh, Now, it's used biblically in terms of how God is administering, which is a different administration than the aeon or the world, the world system. Very good. Very good. So we looked at that word and we looked at the word for transform where we get the word, the English word metamorphosis, as you can see from the Greek word there. And it's a total change. It's not an immediate change. It's an ongoing present tense there. So it's an ongoing lifetime change, but it's a change from the inside to the out. 
And it won't be completed until we go to be with the Lord, but it's a process, this transforming process. Gray, uh, I have a question on that one. All of us are in the midst of it. Connie, go ahead. In my notes, uh, the word you used, here you've got metamorphuse, um, but in my notes, I have metamorphumai. Which one is correct? Well, one, I think this is what you find in the, the text. This is the uh, verb form present uh, passive, I believe, if I got it uh, broken yeah, down the, well enough. Yeah, the theta eta is the Sigma theta eta is passive. It simply re uh, <clears throat> recognizes that the action is being performed on the person by God. But the, uh, the one that Connie referenced is probably just the standard defective ending. Yeah, the, the basic form. Yeah, I might have. Uh, yeah, both of them, I think, are correct. One, I think this is what's in the text itself. Yeah, the other one would be the lexical form, like we say, to change. Well, they say, I change. Right. It's the first person instead of the infinitive, but it's just the general form, like you said. Yeah, very, ob very observing, though, however, Connie, even though you don't have a lot of Greek background, that was very observing on your part. Total change. Does that yeah. answer your question? Denise, Denise was on me about that one right away, too. She was, huh? <laughs> Us word people. Good. You guys are good students of the word, observing little tiny details. Ray? Go ahead, Jim. Well, it's interesting, too, that it's it's an imperative. You wonder why it's not really a middle voice instead, because it seems like there's there's a part on both God and the person. Right. It's imperative. a present imperative. Exactly. Very good. Good observations, guys. Proud of you guys. Uh, yeah, but this actually has to be a passive and not a middle. Yeah. Because uh, in Philippians, it is God who is in you to work and to will according to his good pleasure. Mm -hmm. It's not our doing it. Yeah, it's a command or an imperative because we we have a part in it, but the transforming has, you know, God's the one that does the transforming, and that's why it's in the passive Good. We broke that down, in fact, further than what we did when we looked at it last last week. So, to be totally changed from inside out, it's a process that takes time, present tense, ongoing, and will not be completed. And then we looked at the word renewing briefly. It's inward renovation. Uh, it has newness in the middle of the word there, kainos, ana kinosis. So it's an inward uh, re-renovation or renewing. This is the part that we play. We, we study the Word, and we're here this morning for the purpose that our minds are renewed and that we see things from a different perspective. And the Word is so extensive, it's not done in one reading. Even as you, those of you that are reading through the, the Bible in a year, uh, you will not be totally renewed in your thinking. It takes continued emphasis and study and looking at the details as we just looked at in terms of that transforming Greek word there, transformation. So the renewing of our mind is an ongoing process. That's the means by which God uses to be able to evaluate. It's a, it's a word of thought. It's a word of thinking 
the process of not only not being conformed, that the ability to be able to be discerning and sorting out these things that affect us in the world and the things that uh, transform us into the image of Christ. It's a renewing of the thinking. And then this is the word that we're eventually getting to. That was just a review. The word that's translated in verse two, the proof, dokimazo, to learn by experience. Now, it can be translated to test, to prove, as it is in the New American Standard. And it has the idea of proving by experience, you might say. And what can be observable is as we live in this process of transformation, separating ourselves from the things of the, uh, the world that we're tempted to fall into, this proves because our lives are different. It proves to any observer that has eyes to see what the will of God is. In other words, this is what God desires. It, it, it des- he desires that we lay down before him as living sacrifices And as this process works itself out, it is demonstrable. In other words, it's visible. It can be proven, if you will, or seen. It's like uh, from my background in in engineering, when you, uh, in fact, you can see this every, every day. If you go to a construction site and they're pouring concrete, there's certain specifications for the concrete that's being laid down. And in order to understand whether or not the supplier provided the adequate strength concrete, uh, you'll observe, if you're observant, uh, somebody, a testing lab that'll go along with uh, the construction crew, and they will take a sample or samples of that concrete, set it aside, let it cure, and then they'll take those uh, cylinders and they will take them to the laboratory and test them for strength, compressive strengths, with in a testing machine that determines or applies pressure uh, to see the strength of the concrete. And you can uh, anticipate certain strengths after seven days, so they'll give it a seven-day test. Then they'll give it uh, the official one, or the, uh, the determining one is the 30-day test, and if it passes the strength test, then uh, the concrete is accepted. So the contractor has to be careful. Otherwise, his his whole project can be rejected, or at least the concrete that was poured on that day. That's the idea. So this test is to demonstrate that that concrete meets the specifications, whether it's 3,000 pounds per square inch or more commonly today, 4,000 PSI is what is used. If it passes the test, it it demonstrates itself to be authentic, what is required, what was intended, what was specified. Similarly, in uh, the Christian walk, when we are in the process of being transformed and not be conformed to the world, it proves that God's will is working itself in in our lives. We're living in fellowship with him. We're walking in his power, not our power. We're allowing him to uh, work within us to accomplish his purposes and his goals. 
it proves that uh, this is what God desires. This is what God's will is. And that will is good. In other words, it's beneficial to all involved, not only to the individual that is living the life, but it's good for those even around him. It has effects upon those that uh, we have influence over. And certainly it's acceptable in this context. This is what God desires. It's even perfect. It's even perfect. In other words, it's mature. It's uh, it's what uh, fulfills what God intends. It's got a completeness. Now, there's not absolute perfection. Only God is absolutely perfect perfect, but it's a relative term here. Tremendous passage, Romans 1 and 2. And from that, that flows into verse 3. So I think it is so important. We cannot experience verses 3 through the end of the book of Romans unless we start in terms of what Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 give us the application and that relationship to God. And what we have here is what does this righteousness, how does it flow? And I think you might even uh, draw from that last passage, how can it be seen and how can it be proven what the will of God is in our relationship to fellow believers, the universal body of Christ? And more locally, how can it be seen in our relationship to one another within the local church? And I think that's what uh, Paul is moving into in verses 3 through 21. So it flows right out of it. And we can't miss that connection. I think this is an important point. That's why I'm kind of stressing it. It's in the text itself, but uh, I think from uh, what we know from other passages, the biblical principle is you have to have your relationship to God right before any other relationship is right as well. There's lots of passages that we could uh, utilize to demonstrate that. And here's another interesting passage. Uh, What God values and what God considers important in terms of our relationship to the church is notice it doesn't talk about attendance. It doesn't talk about being involved in the right doctrinal church. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, the pastor, the right pastor. has nothing, doesn't speak anything to do with whether that church has the right programs. In fact, it focuses on us as individuals and our part in the body of Christ. And if you've ever wondered why the church is weak today, I think you find the answer in this passage, along with several others as well. If you've ever wondered how the first century church, as the book of Acts indicates, was able to turn the Roman Empire upside down, this passage will explain uh, how that happened. I think what happened in the first century What was communicated was if you are a believer, you have a spiritual gift, and as God is transforming you, part of the transformation process is that you are involved in other believers exercising that spiritual gift. And I think in the first century, in general, except for those that were either too immature or were not 
in tune with what God was doing, I think they, in general, were all, well, I shouldn't say all, but uh, a large percentage of them were exercising their spiritual gifts, and they they made a church that was extremely dynamic, extremely powerful, and extremely influential in the Roman Empire, and that's the explanation of how they turned the Roman Empire upside down. You look at our churches today, it's dominated by one or two people, and the attitude is, well, I give my money, so I expect you to do the ministry. That's not a New Testament concept. Now, Ephesians 4 gives us some detail on how all of this works itself out. And I think Paul here in chapter 12, 3 through 8, gives additional insight into uh, the functioning of the body of Christ, and particularly those that are related to him. But it starts with a proper attitude concerning ourselves. So there's encouragement for humility. That's the first few verses there, three through five. And that's about as far as I intend to get today is close to verse five, if we even get that far. So 12, three, we need to do some evaluating. Where are we in relationship to our attitudes towards ourself and where we fit within uh, the broader body of Christ? And that's the essence of verse three here. So the evaluation for humility. And in your outline sheet, I kind of gave you more detail than I normally do here. I've broken it down into, what, five parts there. The humility of Paul, first of all, that's this phrase here, for through the grace given to me, that's a statement of humility that I'll comment on, but there's four other parts. Humility of Paul, the humility needed by all, that's the next phrase, And uh, he's going to contrast a lack of humility with uh, a humility of sound judgment. And then he's going to conclude the verse with the humility of faith. So he starts, for through the grace given to me, gives us insight into humility from Paul's perspective. I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself. Every one of you, that's the humility needed by all. And there's the possibility of a lack of humility to think more highly of oneself than you ought to think. But we ought to, the alternative or the contrast is to think so as to have sound judgment. So the humility of sound judgment, we'll look at that in a moment. And as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, In other words, in relationship to the faith that God has granted in terms of a a measure of faith. So let's first of all look at this little phrase, for through the grace given to me, this is Paul, the me is Paul writing, the author. And notice he doesn't say, I command you as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ because of my elevated position. Now, There's lots of passages. In fact, the book begins by Paul identifying him as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the highest authority in the church. He doesn't mention his apostleship, but instead he alludes to it and uh, recognizes that he's undeserving of it, that uh, it's nothing in him. He didn't earn it. He didn't merit it. 
but it's through the grace that was given to him. His apostleship is by grace, unmerited, God's choice, God's goodness in granting the authority and the position that God has given him. And he doesn't even identify it because he's already noted it in uh, verse one at the very beginning of uh, the whole book of Romans. So he just alludes to it humbly. Jeff, go ahead. Yeah, I was just observing that Paul begins this verse by modeling the very same humility that he's now going to encourage others to. Exactly. So we have the model. In fact, that would might even be a better way of describing it, the model of humility in Paul. And notice I've already mentioned the for, uh, the Greek word there, gar, uh, usually is a, a word that, that describes something that follows from something preceding. In other words, this kind of comes naturally from uh Verses 1 and 2, the essence of that commitment to our Lord, the laying down of our lives and living it for him as a sacrifice that lives and is set apart to him. This is what it looks like in relationship to the body of Christ. This is what should follow for, through the grace, kind of introductory here, Paul's humility I say to everyone amongst you. Now, I'm going to make a big point throughout this whole passage, uh, this idea of everyone. In fact, I'm going to highlight it as we get further into it here. But already we, uh, we have this idea of the, the members of the body of Christ and the total inclusion of everyone, as opposed to separating elites, you might say, or leadership, or the focus is our part, everybody's part. And that would include, in fact, he includes leadership, because he's going to talk about that later on when we get to verses 6 through 8, when he identifies particular gifts, and the, the, the thrust here is everyone has a gift. We'll talk more about that as we get further. But the address here, I say to everyone, he's addressing everyone among you, amongst you. So it's humility that is needed by, by all, as I've got on my outline sheet. And uh, then it goes on into that, uh, not to think, what are, what, is, what are we all to, what's the perspective we are to, to look at? I say to everyone among you not to think more highly. Now, we need to kind of break down the words here because in the Greek text, it's very obvious, you might say, because he's using a verb and, in fact, uh, three verbs. He's using them four times, the main one, to think. I've got it there, phroneo is the way you pronounce that. We'll camp on that in a moment. But that Greek word sticks out if you look at the Greek text there, because here you have hooper from neo, and if you look ahead there, but to think, same word again, not to think, you ought not to think here, from neo, and then from neo again, and then you skip, and New American Standard translates as to have sound judgment. That's a word that's related to from neo there. Notice, you see the stem in it as well? All highlighted as we move through here. So you want to notice we have a word that is 
a word group, you might even say, that's were used four times in this context deliberately to make a particular point. The idea of thinking, the idea of evaluating ideas or thoughts, and in this context, dealing with ourselves. In other words, how do you view yourselves? What is your perspective on who you are? And he gives a balance here. In order to relate to the rest of the body, we have to have a proper perspective on not only who we are, but how we relate and the attitude that we have. And as you can already tell, the attitude is one of humility. And as we relate to one another, we relate humbly. So to think more highly, that word, we'll look at it here to think highly, and notice I've kind of highlighted phroneo there with a Greek preposition, which is very common to attach a preposition to a word, and sometimes it uh, changes the meaning, or sometimes it intensifies the meaning, and in this case, it seems to do both, to hold to a high self-opinion. In other words, the very opposite of humility. It, It can even be an arrogant attitude. In other words, I'm better than everybody else. And keep in mind, this is in this context, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And uh, if you remember, one of the main problems at Corinth that Paul addresses is the issue relating to the exercise of spiritual gifts. And the Corinthians were totally out of perspective, I guess you could say, in their utilization of spiritual gifts. They were elevating some, and there were some that probably had a very high opinion of themselves because they had more visual or more outward spiritual gifts. And there were others that were probably feeling more inferior because they had what they would appear to be lesser gifts. And there was lots of division and problems in the exercise of spiritual gifts so much so that Paul writes three entire chapters in 1 Corinthians to correct that problem. So in this whole area, I think naturally and in the flesh, we have the tendency to overemphasize some gifts, and particularly those that have those more visible, more uh, public gifts, have the tendency of thinking, well, I'm somebody elevated, I'm somebody special. You may have a gift, but yours is not as important as mine. So you have to have a a proper perspective on them. And it's a grace perspective. It's the same thing that Paul started off with in terms of the grace that he recognizes in his apostolic gift. He had the highest gift that you could experience in the first century, that of the gift of apostleship that led also to the highest position in the body of Christ. And he recognizes it, that it's by grace. And that's the same attitude that we need as well. Was somebody commenting there? Well, yeah, Ray, I wanted to see what you think about uh, this. Uh, It seems like in our church churches today, uh, there's more emphasis on those gifts like pastor, for example. Uh, But it seems like on a broader scale in the church itself, there is a total lack of interest or understanding uh, or 
pursuit by the by uh, the members of the church to find out what their spiritual gifts are and apply them. Yes. And that's the emphasis of this whole passage that we'll hopefully bring out. Exactly. Do you have any more to say there? No, I, uh, it's just uh, there is that other side of the coin, it seems like, in practice. Yep. And I think that contributes to the weakness of the church today in that we have, in fact, done this. And not only the individuals themselves, but we've elevated some gifts above others and uh, given too much attention. What I was going to say is uh, I was kind of laughing to myself when uh, Janie called me a pastor last time. And I know she meant it in the proper sense, but I avoid being called that. And most of you know why. And because I don't think I necessarily have that particular gift. But those that don't know me as well know that I uh, often react when people call me a pastor (laughs) for a lot of reasons. Anyway, that's a side note. So the word hooperphroneo has the the idea of thinking and thinking of oneself that is really not reality. It's a, a thought and certainly not biblical. We have to have a right way of thinking, and that's what he's encouraging in the usage of the other words here. So to think more highly of himself, think more highly is a translation of the New American Standard of Hooper Froneo, and again, of himself, then he ought to think, and there's the, the basic word, froneo, but to think in a different way. So he's going to give a contrast with the but there. So that leads to the next word here, and it's the basic part of the uh, hooper froneo, and the word froneo is used. And by the way, this word has uh, been used by Paul in other passages as well in terms of uh, other context in the book of of Romans. So it's basically the idea to think. Uh, Some see it relating to wise thinking. And if this word doesn't have that, the next one certainly does with a a different prefix. And the other word, so as to have sound judgment. Now, the New American Standard gives you no hint that this word is related to these other three froneo used two times, and then hooper froneo, we have sophroneo. Any of you remember the Greek word sophia and what that word is related to? Wisdom. Wisdom. Very good. Connie, you're on top of your Greek today, and you've never even taken Greek. Great, sophia. Great. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, A related question on the hooper froneo. Uh, translated into English or our usage uh, adaptation of that word, um, the Hooper part, um, do we do we utilize that like in hyper, like, uh, you know, in terms of relative degree? Yeah, yeah, I think it has that idea. Uh, that's where you get this more highly or, yeah, yeah, that that's part of the Hooper but the uh, preposition itself has more the idea of above, you know, that sort of, can carry that idea. Yeah, more highly. That's why it's translated that way. Yeah, good observation. 
But instead, we are to have, and I think it's a legitimate translation, I don't think it's a bad translation, conveys the idea of sufroneo, or to think wisely, maybe, you might literally translate it, or with sound judgment, or accurate evaluation, you might say. And this is needed in the context, and there's balance here. There are some believers that have the tendency of elevating themselves and to think unrealistically. In fact, I've run into Christians that uh, think they have gifts that they don't have because they think in their thinking, uh, well, that's the gift that I want, and that's the gift that I'm pursuing, and that's the gift that I want to be seen exercising, and they don't have a realistic view of who they are or what God has given them. And in their imagination, they're imagining a a ministry that God never intended for them. Now, that's one tendency. I think the balance here also is there's probably the majority of people is people are not exercising their gifts because they don't think uh, their gifts are of much value. So you don't want to depreciate what God has given you, but you want to look at and evaluate the giftedness that you do have with sound judgment. And the passage is going to go on later to encourage us to, to find our place in the body of Christ and to exercise. The whole thrust of this passage is we all, every single one, I say to everyone among you, and that's going to be stressed later on in verse 6, everyone has a spiritual gift. Everyone has a part in the functioning functioning of the body of Christ, everyone should be exercising that gift. Whether it is a prominent upfront gift, and we'll look at a description of some of those gifts, and I don't know how much you want to get into it. Next week, I'm intending to get through the uh, verse 8 passage, but uh, we can look at it in more detail if you're interested, but I don't want to spend too much time. I think many of you are familiar with spiritual gifts, But the one thing I want to stress today is the idea that everybody has a gift and everybody should be exercising that gift to the fullest extent that God intended. And sometimes if you have a service gift, you may diminish it and not think much of it. But what Paul is saying is you need to have a proper biblical perspective on who you are, not an elevated out of proportion perspective, but on the other hand, not a diminishing of who you are and thinking, well, I'm not that value in the body of Christ. I just attend and all I need to do is just write a check each week and uh, I'm good. No, the body of Christ, in fact, we'll see that in the following passages, is incomplete without every single believer contributing to the functioning of the body of Christ. And that's what it means to have sound judgment. So let's move on into the next part here, or just looking at the word here, uh, sound judgment, sophroneo. Notice the same root with the little preposition that probably adds the idea of soundness or wiseness. And the word has the idea of to be in one's right, right mind. So... 
sophroneo, to be in a right mind, wise thinking from Sophia at the prefix there, or reasonable thinking, and the idea of being in a right mind, what do we describe a person that is not in their right mind? Loony. Loony. Insane. <laughs> Isn't that Greek? Yeah. Loony is Greek. Exactly. <laughs> Very good, Connie. So basically, to diminish your gift and to diminish your place in the body of Christ is insanity. Not being in your right mind, but we should be in our right minds. And, and that's wise thinking, sound thinking. That's the encouragement here. And that right thinking is a proper evaluation of what our gifts are and the utilization such that we know that without our gift, we are actually diminishing the body of Christ because the body of Christ is not fully expressed unless all of the gifts present are in fact expressed. Now, that doesn't mean every Sunday morning. In fact, the gifts, some of the gifts are better expressed during the, the week itself. Now, to kind of bring out the relationship of these four usages, one of them used two times. I liked what S.L. Johnson, the way he kind of retranslated it. You could translate it not to be high-minded, see the word there, mind, above that which he ought to be minded or what he ought to think, but be minded or to think as to be sober-minded. See how he brings out the, uh, the Greek usage there as well. Another kind of use the same idea here is not to overestimate oneself beyond a true estimate, but to estimate oneself with a proper estimate, summarizes the usage of those Greek words there. So those are two ways of retranslating it that brings out the essence and the thrust of what we have here. And the last phrase here, the humility of faith is the way I describe it, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, God has given the gifts. God has equipped every one of us. I say to everyone among you, God has allotted each a measure of faith. And in accordance to the faith, he's recognizing that there's diversity here as well. There are differences within the body of Christ, and we have differences in terms of giftedness. We have differences in terms of ministry. Everybody's unique, and everybody is different. We're like snowflakes. There's none identical, and I don't think any one of us has the same combination of giftedness, but whatever that may be, as God has allotted to each, notice again, we have the to each here, a measure of faith. In other words, in proportion to the faith that you may exercise in, in the utilization, we have different uh, maturity levels, different levels of trust, you might say, but to that measure, we are to exercise our gift. But it starts with this attitude of humility in terms of how I relate to the rest of the body. I'm going to stress as we go through here, all believers are to be part 
and involved in the functioning of the body of Christ. In verse 3, we have everyone among you, and we just looked at the word allotted to each. But he's going to stress this in 4 and 5 when he talks about many members. In other words, he's talking about each member, all members. In verse 5, there are many, many members. Speaking of uh, each one of them, and then he goes on individually, members of one another. And then in verse 6, each to each of us is given a spiritual gift. So we have the emphasis of the unity of the body of Christ on an individual basis that we all have a part. But we're also going to see there's going to be this diversity, verse 3, according to. To each. In other words, there's differences in the way that God has gifted us, and it's according to the way that God has gifted us and according to the measure of faith that he's given, the measure of faith. Four and five, there are different functions, so there's diversity in the exercise of spiritual gifts. None are the same, but all are valuable. All are needed. All need to be expressed there's different members, verse 5, and then there's different gifts. So great diversity. So this is probably a good place to end. I thought I'd get through first. Well, let's take a look. Let me just introduce verses 4 and 5 here. What I've got on your outline sheet, the outline within an outline, how does righteousness look? How is it lived out in the church? I think the first thing that we have is we have to have that commitment to God, because if not, everything else is out of balance. We have to have the proper attitude of humility. So that's the starting point, the right relationship to God and the right attitude that summarizes verse three. And then uh, we'll look at verse four and five, where we have an extensive function of the body very quickly. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, he's using an illustration of the body. And I'll uh, talk a little bit about physiology next time and the body. And then verse 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ. So there's the unity and individually members one of another. There's the diversity. Individually, we're different. Individually, members. And together, we make up that one unified body. So we have the uh, extensive function of the body. And we also have, in verse 5, the exercise of individual members of the body individually differing gifts that he'll get into in verse 6. Well, that's probably a good stopping point. Let me get down to my uh, concluding thought or concluding question. Do you know your giftedness and are you using it? That's kind of the theme of 3 through 8. And you might think about that and we'll talk some more about spiritual gifts next week, starting in verse 4, and hopefully I'll get through verse 8 next week, unless we get uh, further discussion on it. Any comments before we get into prayer or additions? I, Go ahead. Who's that? That's Connie on that blue slide that says living-church. What did you have after attitude? 
We'll get into that proper relationship. In other words, we have to have a right commitment to God, a right attitude in terms of our place, an attitude of humility, and a right relationship to one another. That summarizes four and five that we'll develop next time. I think people may be uh, confusing the idea of an aptitude with a gift from the Spirit. We'll talk about that. Very good uh, observation. Yes, I would agree with that. Spiritual gifts are not aptitudes or natural abilities. They're supernatural enablements. Yeah, we'll uh, specify that. Steve, can you... uh, introduce and if there's a prayer request there we can pray for that as well jeff and what's his wife's name gearhart jeff yes yeah it's um jeff and phyllis gearhart that's right i met them uh i met them in albuquerque oh gosh it's been last century last century yeah last century 40 years ago and we've since then we've kept in loose contact. Uh, we and uh, so this last year we were able to head to Kentucky and uh, we visited the Ark in Kentucky. And Jeff and Phyllis live in Ohio, and we're forever grateful to them for showing us around the Ark. We were. When we went, that included Katie, Mike, and her and their uh, five boys. We uh, arrived at the Ark when it opened, and I think we were the last people to leave. And it was really a wonderful time to renew our friendship with Jeff and Phyllis. But I'm hoping that they'll uh, say something about themselves now. So, Jeff and Phyllis, uh, tell us about yourself. Hi, this is Jeff. Um, so I pretty much grew up in Albuquerque and uh, got to know Steve. I don't know if we met at Grace Church or not, Steve, but Steve and I were in a couple of classes at UNM together. So we've known each other for, uh, you know, 45 years or more, 47 years. We also had a, a good friend who owned a Bible, Bible store there. So we kind of knew each other a lot through him. And I forgot his name. He came from Minnesota. Um, so we left to go to grad school in 1980 in New York. We were there seven years, came to Ohio for our first job. So I've kind of been on a circle, went from Ohio to Louisiana, back to Ohio. So we've been in Ohio now longer than New Mexico, which is saddens my heart quite actually. <laughs> I still love and miss New Mexico, consider myself a Westerner. And um, We've had some really exciting opportunities with the the church and the Lord over the years. Uh, someday I can share some stuff, but really enjoy uh, this teaching. Ray, appreciate your diligence in uh, opening up the word and the detail of studying scriptures. Uh, one prayer request quickly. My wife, Phyllis's mother, is in a, a nursing home or a home, whatever you call it now. And uh, she's 94. She's had a brain tumor. It's a, it's the casing of the brain. It's not the brain itself. So it's pressing on her brain. She had surgery six or seven years ago. The surgeon was, he was the only one in Chicago that would probably touch her. And he said, just go enjoy your life because it'll grow back slowly. And so we see that coming back slowly and slowly. And so, um, I, we don't feel she's a believer. So you could be lifting up her name. Her name's Martha Haynes. 
And that, that's kind of one of the biggest issues uh, we're dealing with right now. Okay, great. Why don't we go ahead and pray? And uh, I don't have anything I need to go to. And those of you that need to leave, just whenever you're ready to leave, go ahead. And we'll just pray until it seems like it's appropriate. Okay, let's do it. Glorious God, Heavenly Father, we know and revel in the fact that you are sovereign, that you are over all, that you are not bound by geography, that all of us in attendance can be assured that you are hearing our prayers. And Father, more than anything, we want your will to be done in each of these situations. Um, we praise you and thank you for the diaper drop-off in Hong Kong. You are amazing. Uh, we pray for Gary and for Martha's salvation, Lord. Um, as it appears, their time on earth may be ending, may be coming to a close. Uh, we desire, and you desire it more than we do, uh, that they would enter into a saving relationship with you. And, and so we pray to that end. For Mariana as well, Lord, while she may know you with head knowledge, we pray that that would touch her heart, Lord, and relieve her anxiety. Uh, Father, that you would take away that, that spirit of death, um, even as far as her roommate goes, who doesn't like anything for her to talk about anything to do with God or Jesus. Father, I pray that you would lift that oppression, um, that you would give her that right mind that we spoke of today um, so that she would be able to see um, the truth and not just the facts. Um, Father, I pray the same for Stuart and Calvary Chapel and the issues that they are having, uh, especially for Stuart as a, a leader, I won't say pastor, Stuart, um, but as a leader in that church, that you would give him the wisdom he needs to to sort out the, the many different personalities and issues at hand. 